Hey guys, I'm back. It's been a while. Uh, I just looked and it's been since the end of May since I put out a podcast. Uh, and to be quite honest, I've kind of enjoyed my irrelevance. I've been focusing on my own life, my health, uh, saving money, doing lots of stuff. So I haven't had time to podcast. But uh, with everything that's been going on in the news lately, uh, and with the you know, the, the amount of time that I have talked about this issue in the past and how important this issue is to so many people in my family and my friend circles because I come from an evangelical right wing background. I felt like I have to at least do something before Israel possibly commits the worst atrocity of the 21st century. Um, so I figured there's nobody better to have on to talk about this issue than Scott Horton. Scott, how are you doing today? Oh, you're muted, Scott. Oops. Uh, I'm doing great, man. Thanks uh, for having me. Great to be with you again. Absolutely. So I'm really aiming this podcast toward people who come from my background because it's something, if you come from an evangelical right-wing background, you just basically support Israel. And I remember my family was that way. I was that way. Like I haven't always been this way. Um, I remember I first started getting skeptical about it when I was a teenager, but I didn't find out about, um, you know, how screwed up the Israeli foreign policy connection with the United States is until the last few years, watching your videos, watching Abby Martin's um, Gaza Fights for Freedom uh, video that she made, watching Ryan Dawson's stuff, watching all sorts of people in these circles that I'm in now. I had no idea. So I wanted to get you on to talk about more recent history with Israel. I have done episodes you guys can go watch about the history of Palestine, Israel, going you know back to the Roman Empire, back to World War One, post-World War II. Um, I did one with Quinn Driggs that really goes into the whole thing. Episode 253, you can go watch those. But Scott, I wanted to talk about more modern recent history with Israel. And I was wondering if you could explain the Iraq War and Syria and the Project for a New American Century and the Clean Break and how that all has that that Israel is really the central part of all those foreign policy decisions. Most people don't understand why we talk about Israel so much. You know, like, why is Israel such a big deal? They think mm -hmm. either that war was still for American oil companies or it was for WMDs. I was wondering if you could just break down the last 20 years of our foreign policy and how central Israel has been to it in the Middle East. Okay, sure. I mean, you're right. It does. It, Iraq and America's terror war over the last 20 years is, you know, completely tied up what with Israeli policy and particularly the favored policies of the Likud party under Ariel Sharon and then under um, Benjamin Netanyahu. Although Sharon actually ended up leaving Likud and creating his own party called Kadima. And his right-hand man, Ehud Omert, took over for him for a little while there in the later Bush years and earlier, well, I guess just later Bush years. Um, Netanyahu got uh, re-elected prime minister right before Obama was elected president in 08. Um, and he's been essentially prime minister ever since then. There's been, there was a little bit of a trade-off deal where Naftali Bennett sat in the chair for a minute. I don't think Gantz ever did. Anyway. Uh, they call him King Bibi. He's the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, longer than Menachem Begin or any of them in the in the past. Um, so let's go back to 1996. 
Well, let's go back to 1979 for a second. At the Camp David Accord, this is 12 years after the 67 war, the Israelis made peace with Egypt. And part of that deal was they promised that they would give up the West Bank and the Gaza Strip to be an independent Palestinian state. And they basically made very little progress on that through the 1980s. But by the time of George H.W. Bush, and especially after his big victory in Iraq War I, he decided this was time to push the issue. And James Baker held the Madrid Conference in Spain. And the idea was that the Americans would put all this pressure on the Israelis to get out of the West Bank and let the Palestinians finally have their own state next door. People, I think, are confused about this a lot. Just, you know, sorry to go off on this tangent for just a second, but when you talk, read about the Israelis and the Palestinians, I mean, it sounds like the Palestinians have a country. Everybody has a country. And if they're not Israelis, they're Palestinians, then they're from the country next door, right? Except that, no, we're talking about a potential, eventual two-state solution because, in fact, they don't have their own country at all. They're Indians on the reservation, not the country next door. This is a very important point. They were beaten, conquered, licked, taken in 1967. Before that, after the 48 war, they had been under the control of the Jordanians in the West Bank and under the control of the Egyptians in Gaza. After 67, the Israelis took all that land and they took all the people too. But rather than giving them citizenship or then turning them loose and letting them have their own state, they just kept them under occupation this whole time. So George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan's vice president, who then became president, said he and James Baker III said, this is the time to do something about this. And they, in fact, Bush had said something to the effect of, I really hate that Yitzhak Shamir. I sure wish the Israelis would hold some new elections. And they did. They immediately held new elections, like in a week or something like that. I need to go back and check on this. But um, they did that. But then also they declared Bush the enemy. Bush had to go. And if you look at MondoWeiss.net, you can find where Bush Sr. himself, in a talk, I believe at Texas A&M, blamed the Israel lobby for his defeat at the hands of Bill Clinton in 1992. Now, I don't know if he was implying that Ross Perot was part of that or not in the splitting of the vote there. I, I don't know about that. But he said that the Israel lobby went after him, you know, 100% for trying to um, push through this Madrid conference. So I'm sorry, I, I'm getting to George W. Bush's foreign policy here in just a sec. Um, so James Baker famously, I believe in jest, Reed but famously said, F the Jews, they don't vote for us anyway. And somebody quoted him in print. Well, in print, it doesn't sound so funny. And that's true. American Jews vote Democrat anyway. They also have a lot of money. And the richest ones of them, of course, are more right-wing and vote Republican. Not this time and donate Republican. Not this time. They all switched to Bill Clinton and supported Bill Clinton. Now, I have to tell you, I paid very close attention to the presidential election in 1992. I was very interested. In it. I was just in high school. But that means, you know, I wasn't reading the Wall Street Journal and, you know, like in-depth, highest level stuff. I was getting a TV perspective the same as everybody else. And I got to tell you, the word Israel never came up, Reed. Nobody told us that, well, the Israelis have thrown their weight into America's presidential election this year, and they've decided they like the governor of Arkansas better than the sitting Republican president. That was not part of the public narrative, but that is part of what happened in the actual transfer of power there. 
Um, the idea was they didn't want to go along. Bill Clinton comes in, and what does he do? He compels them to go along. And famously had Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin shake hands on the White House lawn and promise that they were going to, I believe this was before Oslo. Then they went, or maybe this was after Oslo. I'm sorry, the handshake. But anyway, they went to Oslo, Norway, and they worked out this deal. And the deal was that within about a decade, the Palestinians would get their own independent state on the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Well, then a Netanyahu fan shot and killed Yitzhak Rabin. Now, Rabin, to be perfectly clear about this, was not really proposing an actual Palestinian state. He was proposing something like statehood inside, almost in a way, inside an Israeli federal or confederate system. Israel was going to still have control over their borders. They were going to be completely banned from militarizing and this kind of a thing. So it was going to be less than total sovereignty, but it was going to be by far a better deal than anything they've had on offer since then. But in 1995, a right-wing Israeli Jewish settler from the West Bank shot and killed Rabin. And his successor, uh, Shimon Peres, didn't last too long. He was quickly replaced by Benjamin Netanyahu. He was elected in 1996 from the Likud party. as a right-wing nationalist, not so much like a religious kook party, more of a secular right-wing nationalist party. I mean, I don't want to say secular like they're anti-religious or something, but just they're not messianic, religious-based um, in their ideology. They're more secular and political than that. But so when Netanyahu came in, three guys, three or four or five guys, but three of them whose names you'll definitely recognize, came together and wrote a paper for Netanyahu. The principal author was a guy named David Wormser. He later became, obviously, one of the founders of the Project for New American Century with the rest of them, and later became Dick Cheney's foreign policy advisor. In fact, the first thing that they did was they sent him to the defense, in the W. Bush years, they sent him to the Defense Department to fire a bunch of people who knew better. Then they put him in the State Department to put a leash around Colin Powell and his buddy Dick Armitage and work with John Bolton to marginalize their influence on behalf of Dick Cheney. And then he went to work directly for Dick Cheney as his Middle East advisor. And he was the principal author of this paper. It's called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And it was actually written for an Israeli think tank originally. And Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife both, both also signed off on this paper. So there are kind of two or three main points to a clean break. And you can read it. I have it uh, reprinted at my site or any, you can find it online pretty easily. One of the points is something that will kind of ring properly in the ears of libertarians and neoconservatives. And that is that Israel needed to move away from their socialist economy toward more of a capitalist economy because it was a giant drain on the resources and was making them dependent on foreign countries like America for their defense. And if they would, you know, undergo a little bit of shock therapy and transfer their socialist economy over to a more capitalist one, that that would be beneficial for, you know, Israeli strength and peace through strength and security through strength anyway, overall. Um, and then they say in there with the ultimate goal of weaning Israel off of the American dole altogether so that they won't be dependent on the United States and American politics for their security needs. Well, you know, see how, how seriously that part of it, uh, you know, stayed the doctrine. But 
the rest of it is like this. We need to overthrow Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And the reason why, uh, everybody open up a map. Try to bear with me on this. Okay, I know it sounds stupid, but it's not my fault. It's David Wormser's fault. Okay, he says, listen, the problem for Israel is that Iran backs Syria and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, especially Hezbollah, which is the threat that ended up forcing Israel uh, a few years later out of Lebanon entirely. Um, they withdrew, I guess, three years later in 1999. But he says, listen, the threat to Israel is Hezbollah supported by Syria and Iran. The solution to that is to focus on overthrowing Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Huh? Well, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense at all. Even on the very face of it, it doesn't make any sense. Saddam Hussein is a minority Sunni dictator sitting on top of a supermajority Shiite country. Remember, after Iraq War I, there had been a big Shiite uprising that George Bush and his government had encouraged and Bush senior, that is. And then they changed their mind and stabbed them in the back and let Saddam Hussein machine gun them all and, and kill them all with tanks and helicopters and put down the insurrection at the cost of about 100,000 lives. Why? Because the Iraqis that had chosen Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war started coming across the border to lead the revolution, to lead the Supreme Council for Islamic revolution to overthrow Saddam. It wasn't just going to be a coup. It was going to be a Shiite revolution was going to overthrow Saddam and take over that country. That was why Bush Sr. had called off his support for the uprising back in the spring of 1991. Well, so how does it make sense that getting rid of Saddam Hussein is going to empower is going to weaken Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah, the axis of Shiite evil that Israel by that time was against. And the answer is that they came up with this stupid Rube Goldberg type. That wasn't a Jew joke. I'm just saying like it was a ridiculous Rube Goldberg type contraption where they said, if we overthrow Saddam, the Hashemite king of Jordan will take over the country. And the Shiites won't be a problem because they'll do whatever he says because he has he claims to have the blood of the prophet. And so they'll just worship him and obey him, which is not how it works at all. They revere the bloodline, not worship, but revere the bloodline of the prophet on the Shiite side. They have no allegiance to the Hashemite, Sunni, sock puppet kings of the British and the Americans and never did. And in fact, when the British king... The, ha the British Hashemite king ruled Iraq in the 1920s. The Shiites had a fatwa that said everyone is forbidden from cooperating with his rule in any way. It was one of the reasons that he fell and wasn't able to maintain power. But David Wormser is an idiot, and he didn't understand that. And Ahmed Chalabi, the Iraqi exile, was telling him, don't worry, dude, it'll be great. And he mentions Chalabi. You see, there's a companion piece, Coping with Crumbling States. And then he actually wrote a book called Tyranny's Ally. America's failure to remove Saddam Hussein from power with a forward by Richard Pearl. So those three all go together, a clean break, coping with crumbling states, and then tyranny's allies, all basically the same thing. And throughout all three essays, the name Ahmed Chalabi keeps coming up. Ahmed Chalabi, the Iraqi exile, who was wanted for embezzling millions of dollars in Jordan, was nothing but a criminal and a huckster and a liar, had fooled the CIA into thinking he was prepared to launch a coup against Saddam in 1995, and they put out a burn notice on him. This is why the, the Pentagon was working with him instead of the CIA. 
But this guy was just completely full of it. He's blowing smoke, telling these neoconservatives whatever they need to hear to justify doing a regime change in Iraq and putting him and his Shiite friends in power. And in fact, after the war, I urge people, if you're really interested in this stuff, read this article by um, John Dizard. It's in salon.com, which I know is embarrassing because that's like the wokest, dumbest website now. But back 20 years ago, they published actual journalism in there. And this guy, Desard, is not a salon guy. He actually is a writer from the Financial Times. So he's not some hack. It's a very well-reported piece, I promise. It's called How Chalabi Conned the Neocons. How Chalabi Conned the Neocons. And there's a section in there, and don't anybody get mad at me, okay? I'm just quoting men quoting each other and things like this, all right? But John Dizard talked to a Lebanese businessman who was close to Chalabi. And the Lebanese businessman says to John Dizard, I asked Ahmed, what are you doing palling around with all these pro-Israeli neoconservatives in Washington? And Ahmed told me, don't worry. This is a quote of a quote here. Don't get mad at me. And Ahmed told me, don't worry. I'm just telling these Jews whatever they need to hear to help get us into the war. And we'll change what we're doing once we get the war to start. And that's in there. You can read it. It's in uh, How Chalabi Con the Neocons. So in other words, Ahmed Chalabi was lying to these men, premeditatedly lying to these men, fooling them into believing that an American and or Israeli regime change in Iraq, again, we're talking about the mid-1990s here still, that, that a regime change against Iraq would benefit Israel and that the new Iraq would be a partner with Israel and that the new Iraq would be dominated by a Hashemite king and then later they changed that to Chalabi himself was supposed to be the new dictator under the neocon plan um, for the war under the W. Bush years when the war came later and that they would rebuild the old oil pipeline from Kirkuk to Haifa um, in Israel, and that this was all going to be great. And in fact, read, um, I wrote about this in my book, Enough Already, the oil plan. People go, oh, the war was for oil. The war was for oil for Israel. Right. It wasn't for America. It was the war was for oil for Israel. And get this, there's a guy named Gary Vogler who was I believe he started out military and then became a civilian and was in charge of the Iraqi oil ministry. He's the American who spent more time in Iraq during Iraq War II than any other man. He was there helping run the oil ministry the whole time. And he read my book and its take on this. And he said, that's exactly right. And wow. guess what? We at the Institute are now publishing his book. It's going to be coming out, I guess, later this year, or possibly early next year. He's had some delays. Um, but uh, the book is all about this, about how the neocons, including Michael Maloof at the Pentagon and some of these others, were completely fooled, and Benjamin Netanyahu himself, were completely fooled into believing, okay, where's my pipeline? We did the regime change for you. You said you're going to build a pipeline for us, and they still believe in it in, even months into the war before they finally realize that they've just been completely burned and taken for fools. So that was how it happened. And, and it turns out, of course, that Ahmed Chalabi was backed by Iran all along. Now, that's not, I'm not apologizing for the neocons. They're as evil as they are stupid, just like W. Bush, who they fooled in to doing what they want for these same stupid reasons. And then what happened, Reed? Well, Iran won the war. George W. Bush, he picked up right where 
his father left off in 1991. And he brought that Shiite revolution all the way to Baghdad. He fought a five-year civil war for them at the cost of a million lives. And then they said, thanks for helping us win. Now don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Beat it. Why? Because he won the war for the Shiite majority, super majority, that doesn't need us. They don't need our money and weapons. They have oil and they're allied with Iran next door. So they told George Bush, sign on the dotted line and get your men out by the end of 2011, right? Oh, I skipped the part where George Bush hired Richard Pearl, made him the head of the defense policy board. This is junior now under Dick Cheney and George W. Bush made Richard Pearl, the head of the defense policy board, made David Wormser, as I said, put him at the Pentagon, then state, then the vice president's office. And they put Douglas Fife as the deputy secretary of defense for policy, where he was in charge of the office of special plans, where they took the lies from Ahmed Chalabi's exiles and laundered them through and pretended they were intelligence and stovepiped it up to the president, the vice president and to the media to lie the American people into war and make the American people believe that Saddam Hussein had advanced chemical, biological and nuclear weapons programs. And he was gonna turn these weapons over to Al Qaeda to use against us and our mamas at his very first opportunity. And that was why we had to launch this war. They called it a preemptive war to stop the conspiracy between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden where the former is gonna give the weapons of mass destruction to the latter to attack the United States with. Which is just an absolute lie and they knew it was an absolute lie. The CIA had known and had reported very clearly there were no ties between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. And in fact, the CIA had to torture two men, Abu Zubaydah and Sheikh Ibn al-Libi into pointing the finger at Saddam Hussein. They were both tied to Al-Qaeda. Neither of them were actual real like Al-Qaeda operatives, but both of them were associates of Al-Qaeda. And that was close enough. I don't know why they wouldn't just make up the lie. They had to torture it out of these men. Say that Saddam taught you how to make chemical weapons. Okay, okay. They cry under, you know, Egyptian torture with CIA officers standing right there observing it all. Um, and Gaddafi, by the way, when he was working for the United States before Obama betrayed him and murdered him, had murdered this guy, Alibi, in his cell and called it a suicide on the Bill Clinton model because um, that's how they do. But anyway, um, so the CIA knew that there was no ties between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, and they knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction. They had to lie, and they came up with the lies to justify this policy. Now, look, I'm not sitting here blaming the J-O-O-S for every little thing like some people are want to do. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just only talking about the real history of what happened. George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld are not Jews right? George W. Bush did this because he wanted to look tougher than his father. He thought it would be smart. And in fact, it was smart, Reed, to get him reelected. Unlike his stupid dad who stopped his war a year and a half before his reelection campaign was up, right? W. Bush knew you got to be in the middle of a war, dad. That way you can get reelected. You don't change horses in midstream. Even dumb ass George W. Bush understood that, had advised his father that in 91, and then his father disregarded his advice and ended the war and lost. So W. Bush said, oh, see how smart I am? And he said, he admitted it to Mickey Herskowitz. He said, if I have a chance to go to war with Iraq, that's what I'm gonna do. Cause that's what a great president needs is a war against a weak little country. And then you can get your domestic agenda through and be a great leader. He said that and people go, oh no, that's a fake quote, really? Then how come George W. Bush's father hired Mickey Herskowitz after that to write the biography of his father, Prescott Bush? 
if Mickey Herskowitz was lying about the boy lying us into war because he wasn't lying. It was a true quote. Read it and weep. Okay. Dick Cheney had taken Halliburton, not run by Jews, and he had run it into the damned ground. He was a terrible CEO. The only reason they hired him was because he had been the secretary of defense and they thought that he could put him on the dole, but he couldn't. It was the Clinton years and he didn't have any real special connections. But as a businessman, he didn't know what he was doing. And so Cheney and his right-hand man, his COO, without doing their diligence, they had Halliburton buy Dresser Industries. The board of directors let him do it. You guys are in charge. Go ahead. They bought Dresser Industries. Well, guess what? Dresser Industries was about to be, I mean, they were literally weeks away from beginning to be held liable on billions of dollars worth of asbestos lung cancer claims, okay? Mesothemiola and, and how you say that? And, and lung cancer. And Dresser was about to get their ass handed to them. And Dick Cheney bought the company a couple of weeks before the verdict started coming in, which is just the most boneheaded move in the history of business. It's an absolute catastrophe. And I don't know that they threatened to murder his entire family or anything like that, but I would advise you, read that if you ever do business with those gangsters down in Houston that run Halliburton, that you deliver for the price that you had assured them and you don't go and run their company into the ground. And I'm sure, you know, they probably didn't threaten him. Just he knew. He knew good and well. He had a job to do. And that was to become vice president of the United States, launch a war and put Halliburton on the dole and transfer hundreds of billions of dollars of American tax dollars into their coffers to make up for the fact that he had nearly destroyed their business in the 1990s. Nobody ever talks about that. I don't know why. I think I had heard it somewhere. And then I looked into it and found it all myself when I was researching for the book. I don't know if anybody else ever really wrote about that angle of it, but I'm certain that this is, if you look at 1994, everybody type in Dick Cheney, 1994, Iraq, and you'll see he, he's being interviewed at AEI. And the guy asks him, because this was the Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl line at the time, was, um, why didn't you go all the way to Baghdad? What are you, gay or something? You know, you sissy. So Dick Cheney is defending the policy of stopping the war, right? And he's saying, listen, if we'd gone all the way to Baghdad, we'd have been bogged down in urban combat trying to find Saddam Hussein trying to form a new government to replace him. Meanwhile, we'd have had pieces of Iraq fly off, he says. Iran would come to dominate the South. Syria, he says, would like the West, which that's ridiculous. I don't know what he's talking about, that Syria wanted the West. It was only when Barack Obama backed the bin Ladenites in Syria that they seized Eastern Syria and Western Iraq. But anyway, and then he says, and we could have a real problem with our allies, the Turks, because of the Kurdish situation in northern Iraq, where if they have independence, that could cause a problem with the Kurdish population of Turkey, which we help our Turkish allies oppress their Kurds, of course, right? And so Dick Cheney explains to the AEI guy, no, 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 it's not that we're sissies, it's that we're smart. We decided to call it off before everything went completely to hell, right? So he knows what he's talking about, right? Then, uh, what? Nine years later, he launches the war. Same guy, right? He knows why not to do it. He does it anyway. Why? For the money. So, 
at this point, uh, with, with Wait, what's um, going, oh, go Rum, ahead. I'll let you finish. Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld had been the secretary of defense before in the Gerald Ford years. And he is an ego unmatched in North American history, maybe, right? He wanted to go in there and show these guys who's boss. And, and people from this era might remember there was a big conversation going on in the militarist circles about transformation of the military. We're going to transform the military, but how are we going to transform it? I remember reading back then in the Wall Street Journal, plan A, plan B, and plan C, three totally different ways. We're going to emphasize air power. No, we're going to emphasize naval power. No, we're going to do this. No, we're going to do that. It was a big argument. Well, Dick, I mean, pardon me, Donald Rumsfeld had a, a position in that. He wanted to gut the land army and empower the air force and special operations forces. His idea of the new order would be America goes in light and fast. We murder the central government in whatever country we're overthrowing with air power and special operations power, and then we leave. We don't want to stay. We don't want to get bogged down in one of these things. Light and fast. Light and fast. And conspiracy types make a big deal about the fact although it's a total non sequitur, they don't know actually what to make of this, but you'll see it brought up from time to time that on September the 10th, 2001, Rumsfeld gave a speech about how the Pentagon had lost $3 trillion and where's the money, right? Well, it's not that they had literally embezzled $3 trillion, although I'm sure a lot of it was stolen, but really what he was just talking about is their absolute lack of accounting, right? Where there's just Nobody knows where the money goes. There's actually a very interesting article in The Nation about three years ago where they talked about all these unique terms and jargons and weird things that they have for the way that they do accounting in the Pentagon that don't exist anywhere else in the history of mankind the way that they do this. It's just a mess. Well, what was the real purpose of Rumsfeld doing that? Why was he doing that? It didn't have anything to do with what happened the next day. It's only 365 days in a year, dude. The, the point of the speech was he was beating the army over the head and telling those generals that they were a bunch of stupid losers and scum who lost all the money and now he was gonna strip the power from them and emphasize air power and special operations forces at their expense. That was what that was about. So that was the motive of Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld in doing the war. But then Cheney hired all these neocons, man. Wormser, Pearl, Wolfowitz, Libby, Hadley, Hannah, um, uh, Sholsky, and, um, and even Ledeen, and Michael Rubin, and, and Michael Malouva, all of these kooks, man. And, and, and um, I don't want to just pick on Jews. Um, uh, um, Zalmay Khalilzad was an extremely important one of them on the National Security Council. He's a Muslim. Um, and there were many more Catholics in the neoconservative movement at the time. I don't know about in the actual Bush administration or not. Certainly in the media, there were many Catholic neoconservatives at that time. Um, so it's not, you know, exactly an entirely a Venn diagram of just like right wing Jews or something like that or, or in the national security establishment. That's not what it is. It's a particular group of men and women who all are friends and used to be leftists and Cold War Democrats and moved to the right. So you could have, you know, people who seem to fit their description at first glance, who actually are not part of their movement at all and disagree with them about a great many things. So, you know, people use that term neocon very loosely, but it's literally like 75 men and women on the face of the earth. And so if you think you might be one, you're wrong. You're not. You never were. You know, you could be a hawk, um, but unless you're 
you know, either related to or best friends with someone who's related to Gertrude Himmelfarb and been to Thanksgiving dinner over at their house, then this is not your set. You know, it's a very small group of people. Um, I, I really encourage people to read Jim Loeb about it and all that. So this is what started Iraq War II. And then just real quick, I know you had a thing there, but let me just say, because Iraq War II empowered Iran so terribly, that was when Bush at Zalmay Khalilzad's insistence, Bush pivoted in 2006 to, to what Yemen. they called the redirection. And that meant, oops, we really screwed up. The Israelis are upset that we've empowered the Shiites. The Turks are upset. The Jordanians are upset. And the Saudis are upset that we've empowered the Iranians and the Shiites in Iraq. So now what are we going to do about it? Right. And this is where the king of Saudi Arabia tells Khalilzad in the WikiLeaks. It used to be you and us and Saddam against Iran. Now you have given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter, right? We have silver platters. They have gold over there. Um, and so what are you going to do about it? So that was when Bush switched back to Al-Qaeda. It wasn't Obama. It was Bush that switched back to the, the well, Saudi shock troops, bin Laden suicide bombers in 2006. And um, uh, this policy saw, you know, real expression with Barack Obama picking it up and continuing it in Libya and in Syria and in Yemen, where if George W. Bush's big mistake is giving Baghdad to the Shiites, Obama's going to try to take Damascus and Sana'a away from them and give it to the Sunnis, which, you know, in Libya, they got the regime changed, but that wasn't a Sunni Shia thing. There's no Shia there. But in Syria and in Yemen, it failed both times, but they killed about a million people in each one, probably certainly half a million in each one in the name of trying to make up for the disaster of W. Bush's policy. And as I detail in the book, you know, because as bad as Iraq War II was, Reed, George W. Bush wasn't trying to give Eastern and Southern Iraq to Iran. And he wasn't trying to give Western Iraq to Osama bin Laden. It's just that he's the dumbest piece of crap ever to be the president of the United States. And he was listening to that idiot David Wormser and his friend Richard Pearl. And he screwed up, right? But when Obama took Osama bin Laden's side in Syria, man, that wasn't no accident. That was for real. And when you read my book, and because it sounds crazy, it sounds like, I mean, I'm making a very severe accusation here. You shouldn't trust me. So when you get to that part of my book, Syria and then Iraq War III, I have block quote after block quote after block quote after block quote from President Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State John Kerry, her successor, and all of their friends, Jamie Rubin, uh, Clinton's old, uh, Bill Clinton's old State Department spokesman from the 90s, writing in Foreign Affairs. I have all of these people explaining in their own words explicitly, why are we backing Osama bin Laden's suicide bomber, head chopper, lunatic, murderer, terrorists in Syria? Because George W. Bush gave Iraq to Iran because he listened to the neoconservatives. And so we are now trying to make up for that fact by taking Damascus away from them. That's it. And so, look, man, I mean, forget Afghanistan and Somalia and even Libya. Those are peripheral. But Iraq War II, Syria, the dirty war in Syria, which is one of the worst things that the United States has ever done ever 
I mean, comparable to like firebombing Tokyo, what Obama did to the poor people of Syria. It's just unbelievable. And then the same thing with Yemen. I mean, if we find out at the end that the excess death rate in Yemen has calculated fewer than 1 million dead innocent civilians, then I owe you a beer, dude. But they committed a deliberate genocide against those people, a deliberate war against the civilian infrastructure of the population of the nation of Yemen, just because they didn't like the fact that some Shiites had taken power when they weren't even the sock puppets of Iran anyway. The Iranians, even Obama himself admitted this, the Iranians had told the Houthis not to seize the capital city of Sana'a. And they did it anyway, because they don't take their orders from Tehran. But oh well, good enough reason to start a war and kill hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people at absolute minimum. Um, and, and that's it. So look, in other words, when I first started reading antiwar.com, I remember thinking, oh, I can't wait for Justin's article tonight. When Justin Raimondo's article hits, it's guaranteed it's going to be about what Dick Cheney said yesterday about what Donald Rumsfeld lied about or whatever. And then the article would come out and it would be about Ariel Sharon and the Israelis again. And I remember thinking, what is it with this guy? Like, I know he's not an anti-Semite. He's clearly, you look at, you read him carefully. Justin Romano didn't hate Jews. That is not what was going on. But like, I did wonder, why is he writing about Israel again? He's writing about Israel again and again and again when I thought that this week's big story was something else, you know? And I came to understand, no, nah, that is what it is, dude. That is what it is. For people like me who in 2001, would have told you that a Republican means James Baker III, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the third, dark Lord of the Sith, his boss, George Bush, who's literally a Bush, a member of the Skull and Bones, a cousin of the Queen of England, a Mayflower family, or very close, right? The Walkers, I think, are a Mayflower family, you know, that he married into there. Um, that's who rules America, bankers and oil men, you know? And then, nope, that was not it. And it was not George H.W. Bush's new world order that was going to war in Iraq. That's not what it was. And I learned finally, and I should have got over that by the time of the Kosovo war, but um, I, I finally got over, you know, that whole one world federalism and all of that grand design stuff uh, by the time that George Bush's son, took us to war with Iraq in absolute defiance of consensus on the UN Security Council. Not that I care about that, but I'm just saying it meant that he clearly wasn't trying to build a one world government here. He didn't give a damn if he had a UN approval to go ahead with the war. He did not do what it took to try to bribe France and Russia into joining them by, I don't know, promising them all the northern oil fields or some kind of thing like that. It wasn't a UN war. It just wasn't. It was this whole other thing. And what was it? What was it, Reed? It was the Likud. It was the Israel lobby in the United States. And quite frankly, Ariel Sharon was an Iran hawk, but the American Israel lobby and the neoconservatives, they were closer to Netanyahu and he was an Iraq guy. And they were just determined to get us into a war with Iraq for Israel. That's what it was all about. So in the time we have left, I wanna talk about how this conflict is not just the IDF versus Hamas. This could really powder keg into something way bigger. Uh, we obviously tensions with Russia between the United States are very high with what's going on in Ukraine, but if Hezbollah and Iran and Syria get dragged into this, which it looks like they might, 
those are all allies of Russia. And that makes things that much worse already. And then tensions are obviously high with China and North Korea. So over the next few weeks, what could this turn into if Israel really decides to just go in and completely level Gaza, which lots of surrounding powers do not want to let them do? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, I think it's my best understanding, Reed, is I don't think that that Russia has a real war guarantee alliance with Syria or Iran. You know, they have a rivalry with Iran going back and they work together sometimes and against each other sometimes. They're working together right now on the Ukraine war. Iran is supplying Russia with drones and that kind of thing. But it's not like, oh, if you pick a fight with Britain, you pick a fight with us, right? It's not right. like that. So I don't think that necessarily if, if things get much worse in the Middle East that it would necessarily spread to Eastern Europe or Asia or that kind of deal. So a massive regional war that includes Iran and Syria and Hezbollah, and at that point, probably Iraq as well, and who knows what else, would be an absolute catastrophe with or without Russia. If, you know, who knows what Putin's going to do? I mean, maybe he would say, don't you attack Russia, you're going to have a fight with me, but he'd be crazy to do that, man. I don't know if he would or not. I, I can't see what, what he would stand to gain from that. You know, probably what he would do is get on the phone to Netanyahu and say, please dial it back rather than threaten him. You know, um, they have an OK relationship, I believe. Um, but um, look, go back a week, OK? A week ago yesterday, Hamas did this giant jailbreak and they slaughtered hundreds of innocent people. Israeli Jewish civilians, men, women, and children. I don't know if you saw this, Reed. I know you're busy with your real life. And I don't know if I should keep saying this or what, like exactly is the protocol for this man, but it's like kind of relevant to the story. But Hamas kidnapped and murdered an extended family member of mine yeah, in this thing. She was at some kind of event adjacent to that rave, is my understanding. My mother-in-law's cousin and was kidnapped and then murdered, right? Um, and so that shit is true, dude. All right. They, they went out there and they butchered innocent civilians by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Why did they do that? Oh, because Mohammed is evil. Well, no, it's a tactic a strategy in war. It's war. And the strategy as absolutely sick and cynical as this is, Reed was to provoke Israel into doing exactly what they're doing right now, okay? That's why Osama bin Laden hit our towers. He wanted us to invade Afghanistan, as he put it, to replicate the Russians' war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Well, I got news for you. The Soviets killed about a million people in that war. A million Afghans were killed. Osama bin Laden didn't care about that. He wanted to replicate that. Let Allah sort them out. If they're good Muslims, they'll all go to paradise anyway. Who cares? Bin Laden decided for the people of Afghanistan, okay? That's what Hamas has done to the people of Gaza. Hamas has decided, let God sort them out. Provoke Israel into doing this absolute horrific invasion that they're doing. And they've already killed themselves hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of innocent civilians. I know it's more than a thousand dead. I don't know what the proportion is between civilians and Hamas 
militia fighters because they're not a, a military force in any way. They're trustees in an Israeli concentration camp. They're not a, a government in any sense. But um, certainly hundreds of innocent people have been killed. I saw a thing yesterday that said four Gazan families have been completely taken off of the register in uh, Gaza because no generate no person surviving in any generation of their family exists any longer. They've been completely erased. And including, I know a guy who lost family members in Gaza as well. Um, Hamas was trying to do that in order what? They're trying to provoke a reaction by Israel in order to provoke a counter reaction by Hezbollah by Syria, by Iraq, by Iran, by Saudi Arabia, by every armed force in the region. And for that matter, possibly even Israel's allies as well. Everybody wants to look away from Palestine and look at Ukraine and COVID germs and whatever instead. Everybody wants to pretend that this doesn't matter anymore. Every All of these Arab countries that are making these normalization deals with Israel, the Abraham Accords. They're not really peace deals. None of these countries were at war with Israel, but they had all sworn that they would never normalize relations with Israel until Israel gives justice to the Palestinians. They need either independence or citizenship. You can't just keep them under occupation like this. And what the Abraham Accords invention was is that Jared Kushner figured out that if he just gives up enough American tax dollars, then every one of these um, Gulf monarchs has a price and that they can all be bought and eventually they'll normalize relations with Israel without Israel having given justice to the Palestinians. They will be forsaken in the name of American money and weapons instead. And now that's at least in all in jeopardy, right? And in fact, uh, Max Blumenthal on the show had a quote from a member of Hamas who specifically said that they were trying to disrupt the negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Israel over the Abraham Accords. And what was one of the first things that happened? Crown Prince Bonesaw, the American sock puppet dictator of Saudi Arabia, got on the phone to the president of Iran, who he'd never spoken to before, even with the new peace deal that China had brokered between Saudi and Iran. Um, they had never spoken. Well, now they've spoken in the name of, boy, we better do something about this Palestinian issue. Now, look, they're all cynical. You'll hear Zionists all the time say, well, the leaders of the Arab countries don't care about the Palestinians. Well, that's true. Well, what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> that our morality is supposed to be like subject to the, the ceiling of whatever the crown prince of Saudi Arabia cares about? We're not allowed to care about the Palestinians any more than him, who never cared about them at all? complete red herring. It's a non sequitur. It's not even an argument. It's just a ridiculous thing to say to try to change the subject, try to make it sound like it makes no sense for anyone west of Palestine to care about the Palestinians if nobody east of them cares about them. But that just doesn't make any sense at all. And, and by the way, look, this is the main point that I should have made at the top of this thing for your conservative and evangelical audience is that, you know, serving uh, Israel in this way does not protect American interests. The 9-11 hijackers, many of them were motivated by American support for Israel. And not American support for Israel being a nice little Jewish boy minding its own business, but for their absolutely brutal repression of the people of Palestine and at that time of Lebanon. And in fact, the main 
they call him the, the ringleader hijacker, Mohammed Atta, who crashed Flight 11 into the North Tower, I think. Yeah. Um, he had joined when, after Rabin was assassinated and Shimon Perez took over, he launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in southern Lebanon. And that day, Mohammed Atta and his buddy Ramzi bin al-Sheib filled out their last will and testament, which was equivalent to like going down to the army recruiting station and signing up. And they had decided to dedicate their lives, read, to these are Egyptian engineering students studying in Hamburg, Germany. And they decide in 1996, they're going to kill Americans in revenge for what Israel is doing in Lebanon. Right? Like, it's fair that your mama don't understand this. And Lord knows, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush never explained the truth about what was going on and why this was happening. But that was what it was. And um, so the, um, you know, the September 11th attack, in fact, those two guys who had wanted to fight America, they still didn't know what to do. What were they going to do? But then a few months later, in the summer of 96, bin Laden put out his, get this, declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. Pretty subtle, right? The Americans with their combat forces in Saudi Arabia, declaration of war against you. And he goes on and on and on in there about Operation Grapes of Wrath, where the Israelis invaded Lebanon and where they... In fact, what's called now the first Kana massacre, that's Kana with a Q, Q-A-N-A, -A, because they did it again in 2006, 10 years later. But in 1996, in the first Kana massacre, they shelled a UN shelter that had all women and children hiding in it, killed 106 of them. And bin Laden said, we'll never forget the severed arms and heads of the babies of Kana. And that's why we're going to kill you is because what you're doing here. And it was when Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Sheib read that, that they decided to join Al-Qaeda. Those are the guys, you know, Ramzi bin al-Sheib is in Guantanamo right now. Just three weeks ago, the court ruled he can't be tried because they tortured him out of his mind. He's completely crazy now and can't stand trial because they tortured him. But he's guilty as hell. He helped coordinate the September 11th attack, him and his buddy, Mohammed Atta, who piloted one of the planes that day. And it was all about revenge for what Israel did. And now who could say that that was good for America, that we got to start the third millennium off like this, you know, fighting these horrible wars. And then based off this attack that was motivated by revenge for American support for Israel, then the Israel lobby and the neocons come and hijack our entire foreign policy and launch a bunch of extra wars for Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, pardon yeah. me, but if, and look, I'm being rude here, but like I'm talking to all grownups, everybody take like a stiff swallow. If American and Israeli foreign policy was going to cause Jesus to come back and rapture us all up to heaven, wasn't that supposed to happen 20 years ago? Isn't that what your ministers told you was going to happen if you believed in George W. Bush and the invasion of Iraq? And now here we are. So either the rapture happened and you got left behind with the rest of us, or it was all a lie. They're lying to you, manipulating you. Yeah. You know, twisting your most sacred and, and and most sincerely held beliefs so that they can get away with murder in the name of Jesus Christ. 
How about have some self-respect, okay? And stop letting people who despise you manipulate you. And I don't mean Jews. I mean the government of Israel, and for that matter, the government of the United States of America. They want you to believe that all this magic is going to happen? If only you let them kill? Is that really the lesson that Jesus teaches in the Bible? Oh, shit. It's so stupid. No one who really believes that Jesus said what he said in the Sermon on the Mount believes in what John Hagee says American foreign policy should be. Are you crazy? You know, lust for the blood of innocent men, women, and children? Not if you really believe you're going to face God on Judgment Day. If you're a Christian because that's your social set, fine. But if you really believe you're going to face judgment, let's hear some more about this bloodlust. Let's hear some more about turn Gaza into a parking lot, kill them all, let God sort them out, innocent men, women, and children. Because that's what your religious faith dictates? Protestant Christianity dictates that? does not either. Yeah, maybe in the red writing in the margin of your Schofield Bible it does. <laughs> let me tell you something. That ain't inspired by God. That's some cynical man just, you know, quite frankly, disrespecting you, taking advantage of you and manipulating you. The hell out of here with that. And I'm so sick of this. After 20 years of this read, well, maybe now if we support Israel murdering children, then Jesus will come back and take us up to heaven. You know, I understand that nobody wants to die alone, but goddamn, man, it ain't right. And you know what? I, assuming the quote's legit, Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. Is W. Bush a holy and righteous man? Well, he killed four million people. Wow. I wish I wish that were the sermon going on in churches today, Scott, um, but I'm kind of skeptical. Um, the, the last thing I want to ask you, I know you got to get out of here soon, is I hear a lot of conservative Christians worried about Sharia law coming to America. And like, you know, they're always complaining about this massive migrant crisis of people going to Europe and coming to the United States and coming over our southern border or whatever. I don't know how to get it through their thick fucking skulls that the way you create these migrant crises is by bombing the shit out of these countries. Where do you expect those people to go? What do you expect them That's to right. do? What would you do in their situation? If you had two kids, would you stay in Gaza and hope for the best? Or would you try to get the fuck out of there and go somewhere better? And yeah. it's not just Gaza. It's Syria. It's in South America where we might not be dropping bombs, but we stage coups and destabilize those countries. Yeah. Um, do drop bombs. Some, yeah, I mean, yeah. some, yeah, not to the same degree, but right. I mean, what, hey, what do we got to do? For, for all the right wing tough guys out there, like you ought to be tough enough to hear this straight. Okay. The refugee crisis of the Obama years in Europe, those refugees came from, are you ready? Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. Okay. And from sub-Saharan countries, where they were able finally now to escape across Libya, which America had smashed, where Muammar Gaddafi had always kept the border tightly closed. Okay? So in other words, if they supported George W. Bush, it's their fault. They have to take their share of the responsibility for causing that refugee crisis in the first place. 
And if you listen to their collective guilt now, the way they put it on the Palestinians, it's their fault that they didn't prevent Barack Obama from becoming president. So they're responsible oh, for all of his sins, too. That's what they say about the Palestinians. Yep. So if you not, if we're all then by by Likud, Republican, Democrat logic, we're all as responsible for the sins of Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump and Joe Biden as the Palestinians are responsible for the sins of Hamas. Right. Um, and so, look, and never even mind that, but I, I don't actually even believe in that. I think that's completely stupid. It was George Bush and Barack Obama and their, I mean, I don't know, if people are like hardcore partisans for these people, then sure, take your share of the blame. But it's really the government themselves um, that launched these policies that destabilized these countries, destabilized the entire region, just as some of us tried to tell you all along was what Osama bin Laden was trying to get America to do for him. We told you that all along. I got receipts, dude. You can check my archives. I got 6,000 interviews going back to April 2003. We told you all along, this is what bin Laden is trying to get us to do. And, and that's what happened. And then as far as the Sharia law, well, as far as the southern border, I, it's crazy that Mexico is allowing people from all over the world to just come in with no visa whatsoever and then come to break through our border like this. And that ought to be a simple negotiation with the nation state of Mexico that you're not going to keep letting these people in from all over the world. Mexican migrant workers is one thing. Who knows who from anywhere on the planet as long as they can get into Mexico, which is apparently no problem at all. I think that is a security concern, quite frankly. I don't think right-wingers are crazy to think that, you know, I think that a lot of right-wing media probably really exaggerates that and wants to pretend that a whole bunch of terrorists have already gotten through and this and that, which I think, you know, people probably don't really have reason to fear that. But it is, you know, a concern that that um, that is being allowed to happen. You have these massive convoys of people coming in by the you know tens of thousands at a time and nobody has any idea who they are and many of them are from the old world not from latin america at all but are from the old world um coming in but as far as sharia law i mean look man this is just a matter of percentages and things like that okay there are about three to five million muslims in america the only place there are a majority is in some very small regions in michigan i think and that's it and they don't have Sharia law there. And there ain't no way in the world that they're going to be able to or would ever, I doubt even try, but certainly could never succeed in overthrowing the Constitution of Michigan or the application of the U.S. Constitution in Michigan in favor of Islamic law. It's just never going to happen. And when people talk about any actual literal Sharia law in America that's not just a made-up lie. What they're talking about is divorce proceedings or child custody proceedings, which is exactly the same way that our courts recognize Catholics and Jews and their religious traditions regarding divorce and custody and these kinds of things. It doesn't override American law, but it is in American law that they respect the religious customs of people when it comes to family matters and things like that. That's it, okay? But now, so where does this come from? And the answer is, 
It's a giant cynical lie, Reed. It's a giant propaganda campaign by the Israel lobby in America. And Max Blumenthal, who is Jewish, wrote this piece back, I don't know, 10 years ago called Fear, Inc. And, you know, Eli Clifton, another American Jewish journalist, has also done tremendous work on this. And the fact of the matter is, it's simply just right-wing cynical liars who want to fool Americans into being afraid of Sharia law. Their leader is a guy named Rabbi Shmuley from New York City, right? Probably never been to Colorado or Texas in his life. Oh, but he wants us to be very, very afraid that the Muslims are about to take over our states and are about to overthrow us and enslave us under Sharia law. So quick, quick, we have to pass a law in Texas preventing Sharia law from taking us over. Right. And then people just assume, oh, my God, apparently there's this real controversy where Sharia law is making some real headway and we're fighting back against that now. But that's not true. It was just made up It's some New York rabbi has germed you in the brain, dude. That's all it is. Trying to make you afraid, like passing a law to protect the sky from falling and makes you think that, oh, there's a problem with the sky. No, the sky is fine. And the American Muslims overall read American Muslims are not very political at all, right? They're essentially upper middle class, um, you know, professionals and, and um, you know, suburban dwellers. Some of their college kids, maybe like um, Palestinian kids in college, um, you know, say some radical things or something like that. But most American Muslims are not very political at all. And where they are, they're kind of conservative Republicans, really. They're like, for example, you saw recently a bunch of Muslims protesting against all this woke gay stuff in public school. And they side with the Republicans on stuff like that. But you don't see them declaring jihad and all this. You know, Hamas called for a day of rage across the world two days ago and said, I don't know the exact quote, so please forgive me if this is an exaggeration. This is, I didn't do the work on this, but I had heard, you know, tell about this, that they had urged people to attack Jews around the world. Well, how many Jews were attacked in America two days ago? Zero. Zero. The big headline was somebody drew a Star of David on a door in Germany. <laughs> like, we don't even know who did it. And it wasn't even a swastika. It was just like, oh, we're identifying this Jew by putting a Star of David on his door. I mean, if a Muslim or a Nazi did that, well, that's pretty insulting. But we're talking about a door, a door. That was it in the entire Western Hemisphere, Reed. Okay? In the entire West. The Muslims of America didn't attack American synagogues. They didn't attack American Jewish community centers. Not one of them grabbed a gun and went and did something horrible. That's not in their interest to do that any more than it's in their interest to try to install Sharia law in your state. It's a fantasy. It's just made, it's a propaganda ploy to make you think, well, there must be some kind of controversy there. Why are they passing a resolution against Sharia unless Sharia was making some real headway? But it's just not. It's just to keep your head in the space where you believe that Islam is dangerous. And why? Because the Palestinians whose land the Israelis want to steal are predominantly Muslim. And so if you hate and fear Muslims, then they can get away with more land rustling. That's it, man. That's all it yeah. is. Just think, Scott, you and I have survived Biden's winter of death and destruction. We survived the national day of jihad and January 6th. You know, That's we're incredible, really. incredible, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
Take hey man, care. I know you got to get going. There, buddy. Um, I know you got to get going, but I, uh, I just want everyone to think, you know, like uh, there's lots of talks about a terrorist attack that's going to happen every time there's a terrorist attack. I've made, I made a point about this on Twitter the other day. Every time there's been a terrorist attack, it's not because they hate us because we eat apple pie and women wear bikinis and, you know, we go to the movies or whatever, whether it's the Pulse nightclub shooter, the Boston Marathon bomber, you know, Osama bin Laden. When you read their manifestos or their 911 uh, phone calls, it's all about American troops occupying places they don't belong. So. Yeah. I don't want another terrorist attack, but the best way to have another terrorist attack would be to send U.S. troops into Gaza. You know, it's just yeah. insane. Which I don't um, think is going to happen. I, I don't think they're going to do that, man. They they certainly better not. But, um, you know, yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that. That, um, You know, in fact, I'll add that there's this documentary. People can watch this for free. It's called Killing Gaza. It's from 2014, and it's from right after Operation Cast Lead. And it's Max Blumenthal and Dan Cohen, two left-wing American Jews, went to Gaza with a video camera and went around talking to people. That's all it is, man. It's just them showing you Gaza and interviewing people. And nobody says, by Allah, I swear to accomplish the jihad and cut the throat of the Jews and whatever. Nobody says that. Nobody. You know what they all say? They go, this is my private property and you can't have it. And that property over there, that was my father's property and you stole it and I'm going to get it back. In other words, they could be speaking any language in the world and they could be talking about any piece of property in the world. They don't say, it says in the Bible that God gave this land to us. That's what the Israelis, Jew, the Israeli Jews say because they have to because it's not their land. They had to steal it. So they need an excuse. But the people who already lived there, they just owned it. They have plain old Thomas Jefferson, John Locke, natural property rights that are being violated. When people say it's a religious war, only on one side. The other side was already there. The other side has to invoke God in order to justify all their sins against the people who they're stealing from and killing and oppressing. Sorry, man. That's just the reality of it. Go watch Killing Gaza. It's free online. It's an hour and a half of two... <coughs> two American Jewish leftists saying, hey, Mr. Arab man, what's your problem anyway? And then they go, well, I'll tell you. So, what? you know, go read it, wait, man. Go look at it. See for yourself. They're not Al-Qaeda. They're not ISIS. And hell, you can't even, they look like Mexicans to me. I can't even tell the difference. I was raised around Mexicans my whole life. I'm supposed to somehow think like Arabs are some different kind of human being than just people. I don't know. I'm, I am spent enough time living in the city. I was a cab driver, man. I, I met people from all over everywhere. And I just don't see them as any less human than me or anyone else. I mean, the true measure of a man is how good he is at skateboarding. And, and you could be from anywhere and you could look like anything and be a better man than me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's just the reality of it, dude. Yeah. Well, Scott, I got all your links in the description to antiwar.com, to the Libertarian Institute. I know you've got a book. I don't know if it's out yet or if it's coming out soon. I'm just want you to get to plug that. All right. So uh, everybody go read. In the meantime, go read Enough Already, Time in the War on Terrorism. But right now I'm working on Provoked how Washington started the new Cold War with Russia and the catastrophe in Ukraine. And 
it's over 1100 pages now and counting. I'm still working on it. I got a couple editors already helping me. We're going to try to cut it down to a reasonable length somehow, but it's everything that Bush senior, Bill Clinton, George Bush jr. Uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden did to make things the way they are in America's relationship with Russia now, including the Bosnian, you know, the Balkan Wars and all the color-coded revolutions and every kind of thing in there. Um, I hope it'll be done by early next year. I don't know. Um, and then, but you know what I'm going to do too, though, is the Russiagate section. I should have said this at the beginning of our show so that all your right-wing evangelical uh, audience members will like me. I'm putting out a book on the Russiagate hoax first. It's about 120 pages of the book is just the Russiagate hoax. One subsection of the Trump chapter is 120 pages. And it's just me debunking every single bit of the lie that Donald Trump was an, a Russian agent or installed in power in 2016 somehow by the Russians. And that is, I'm going to put that out first as kind of a standalone book. Maybe I'll do like Tom Woods and make it like an ebook kind of a gimmick sort of a thing and get people to sign up for my email list or some kind of deal. I don't know what I'm going to do, but try to get that thing out so that people aren't mad at me that provoked is taking so long. And, um, and just cause it does kind of stand alone by itself anyway. And I'd like for it to even just standing alone, the Russiagate section, maybe even to have a bit part in the conversation in the coming election. That, you know, they talk about how you're not allowed at all. Well, nobody on the right is allowed to talk about how there anything in our American elections could be less than perfectly up and up. Um, and yet, look at how they framed a major party candidate for president for treason. And then instead of dropping it, they kept it going after he was nominated, after he was elected. And after he was sworn in, they kept it going for another two years. It's the most unbelievable story. It really is just incredible. It's it, it's not in a violent way, but just in the the way it offends my sense of truth. It's as it's like Obama's war in Syria, right? It's just unbelievable what they did in the way that they framed Trump for treason. And I'm gonna prove it for you. And that'll be coming out soon. I'm not exactly sure. I might just call it the Russiagate hoax and just put it out, you know, as blatant as can be there um, sooner than later. So just keep your eye on the Libertarian Institute. And by the way, look, I said Libertarian Institute. We're publishing four books this month, dude. We got, we just put out Joe Solis Mullins, Joseph Solis Mullen. Um, he wrote a book called The Fake China Threat and it's very real danger. We got Keith Knight wrote Domestic Imperialism. Nine Reasons I Left Progressivism. Isn't that great? Domestic Imperialism. I love it. It's such a wonderful book, too. And then, get this. We got the great James Bovard, author of Lost Rights and Feeling Your Pain and the Bush Betrayal and Tension Deficit Democracy. Um, we're putting out his book, Last Rights, The Death of American Liberty. And then Tom Woods, the great Tom Woods, Diary of a Psychosis. And I'm sorry, I forgot the exact subtitle, but it's something about how public health failed, uh, went crazy and failed us during COVID. And all those coming out this month or like maybe early next month. But um, so we're really on a roll over at the Libertarian Institute. We just put out Lori Calhoun's great book, Questioning the COVID Company Line, which is also absolutely fantastic. So um, 
check out the Institute, check out my show. I got 6,000 interviews going back to 2003. You want to check my work. It's all there for you at scotthorton.org. And I guess that's about it, dude. All right, Scott, thank you for joining me today. Um, everyone go check him out and check out his stuff. It's going to be way better. I don't know when I'm going to be doing another episode anyway. So this is the guy to listen to currently, the Libertarian Institute, everyone that works there. Uh, thanks for joining the show, Scott. Thank you, Reed. Great to talk to you, man.